0: One of my first dates with my wife Corey took place in the summer of 1995 on an old railroad bridge near Snoqualmie Pass. It was our first time bungee jumping together, and um, we're both excited about the idea. Um, but things seemed a whole lot more sketchy on this old bridge than what we had seen in pamphlets and in videos before. Usually when we had seen people bungee jumping on videos, they were like in legitimate looking places with like large bodies of water underneath. And not that you would want to hit that water from 100 plus feet up, but it just looked safer than what we were looking at, which was nearly 200 feet up over this ravine in Snoqualmie Pass. In the summer, the, the creek was like two inches deep. But... It was, good, it was good that they wanted the heaviest people among us to go first because the way it works is they have all of these bungee cords and then they start taking them off the lighter the people get. So that excluded Corey and I from having to go first and that made all the difference. Seeing someone 70 pounds heavier than me jump off this thing and have a good time and have the crew be able to pull them back up, I thought, well, they could certainly pull me back up. And, and just watching the person not die was a really good thing for me. Sometimes it really helps to have an example go before you. Hold that thought. Last week on Easter Sunday, we were rooted in chapter 15 of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Paul's message about Jesus, his gospel, included the central message that Jesus became flesh, that he died on a Roman cross, that he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he rose from the grave in a new embodied existence. Part of his message or good news is that through Jesus, God wants to rescue the entire world. Through Jesus' death, our sin was atoned for. Through victory over death, there's now hope for eternal life, life without death, life without decay, life that is full and substantial and free Of the corruption of sin that's part of the gospel that paul preached paul's message was that through faith in jesus we vicariously die to our sin and vicariously defeat death through his resurrection the corinthian church believed this message they were baptized and filled with the holy spirit they were filled with hope and then something happened Some of them started to doubt the resurrection of the dead was a thing, that it was possible. It wasn't so much that they didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, there were still people alive at that time who had actually seen Jesus resurrected. Their issue was that they had a hard time believing that the dead would one day be resurrected. In fact, some of them thought it preferable to be done away with the body altogether. Paul argues, however, That if the dead aren't raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then we're all in trouble. We're all still dead in our sin. Positively, he says, because Jesus was raised and because death is defeated, a great reversal is in store for the world. The weak will be glorified, the dead will be raised, corruption will be judged, and shalom, God's peace, will cover the land. Now, next Sunday, we're going to tackle the ethical question of 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection, or because the resurrection is so, who cares? How then shall we live? That's next week. It turns out it makes a huge difference, actually, how we live. Okay? But this evening, we're going to look at the two questions given to us by the Corinthian church. And we're going to look at Paul's answers to those questions. These questions have to do with how does the resurrection actually work? And these questions are listed starting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Would you stand with me as we read that text? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 35 through 57. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each one of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of humans, there is another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish." There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in a perishable body and it is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown in a natural body, it's raised in a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven as is the earthly, so are also those who are earthly. And it is the heavenly, or as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so also we will bear the image of the heavenly. Now, I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must be, or must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the glory through Jesus our Lord. Lord, thank you for this word. It is full of strangeness to us, And yet, the ring of triumph and victory is in there as well. Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to hear what it is you're saying, to hear what your servant Paul has written to us, looking back through the vast um, obstacles of time and distance and culture and language. Help us to understand and to be changed. Amen. You may be seated. by the way i know some of you are out there who are like little ocd and you're following along in the text and you realized hey from last week to this week chris totally skipped over verse 29 and that weird thing about baptizing people for the dead two things it is weird we will look at it next week so just chill okay we're gonna move we're just gonna we're gonna look at it next week okay but for this week there's two questions that we see in verse 35 that paul is going to seek to answer over the next 22 verses okay The first question is this, how are the dead raised? The second question like it is, with what kind of body or form do these raised bodies have? Okay, let's look at the first question, how are the dead raised? Literally, how is this even possible? It doesn't make any sense. The world doesn't work like that, or so it seems. There are laws of nature, you know, when something dies, it doesn't get resurrected. It's just not something we see every day. And Paul replies with, you fool. You fool. No, that's not very nice. Uh, Paul's, Paul's reply to their question is pointed, but it's not really as insulting as we might think it, it, it is. In our culture, when we call someone a fool, we probably mean something like, you idiot or you jerk. And what we're trying to do is insult a person on purpose. But in the Bible, the word fool has an Old Testament connotation where it describes a person who goes through life Without taking God into consideration. Okay? So in Psalm 14:1 or Psalm 53:1, we read the words, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That, that, in the Bible, that's what a fool means. It's a, it's a person who goes through life without considering that God is actually part of this life. And the Empire strikes back, of course. Luke Skywalker is training with the Jedi Master Yoda in the swamps of Dagobah. He's learning about the force, this invisible energy field that binds all things together. It's responsible for life itself. Luke learns to use the force. He's levitating these rocks. He's standing on his hand. He's got Yoda and R2 up on his feet. His agility, his power, his power has increased because of the force. But when his spaceship gets stuck in the swamp, he's at a loss for how he's going to get it out. And now, I'm paraphrasing here, so this is non-canonical. But Yoda's like, are you serious? Like, I've been showing you about the force this whole time. You've already seen incredible things. How can you say it's impossible to lift your ship out of the mud? And then this 900-year-old two-foot-doll green dude dressed in a burlap sack shows Luke what's up by just, like, lifting the ship out of the mud using the force. You fool, says Paul. Now, keep in mind, he's writing to the church People who have already come to believe that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence, could he not also raise someone from the grave? Any fans of the Jimmy Fallon show out there? Anyone ever watch that? Uh, Jimmy Fallon does a a little bit on his show every once in a while where he writes thank you cards. Ever seen the, the thank you card bit? So he's got thank you cards like this, and he uses them to make snarky comments, so he'd be like... Thank you, people who say I really shouldn't for letting me know you're about to eat a lot of my fries, right? Right. Or he'll say, thank you, phrase, the greatest thing since sliced bread, for making me wonder who on earth is in charge of figuring out what the greatest thing is, right? So we could do the same thing with the Bible, right? Thank you, Balaam's ass, for making the Bible fun in middle school, and showing the power of God. I mean, it's a talking donkey. That's pretty awesome, right? Or, thank you, crazy Pharaoh, for making God open up a can of Red Sea on you. Dang, that really showed his power. Thank you, anonymous bride and groom, for running out of wine at your wedding so Jesus could do one of his most amazing miracles ever, creating wine out of water. Right? Thank you, created order, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, for giving us more than enough evidence to trust in God's ability to raise someone from the dead. This is Paul's point. How are the dead raised? How is it possible? Because God does it, and all things are possible with God. And so he begins to illustrate using common occurrences in nature— seeds for example they go into the ground like little specks some of you are planting your gardens right now consider a carrot seed this tiny little fleck looks nothing like a carrot you put it in the ground you bury it not too deep then it pump it comes out of the ground it bursts forth out of its little tomb and it it's beautiful and something completely different looking than the carrot seed that it started off as how does it happen well, biologists like Joan's wife, or Joan's husband, Wayne, could tell you exactly how it happens, but, but the ancients would say that God made it happen. And actually, Wayne would say God made it happen too. He just happens to understand how God does it a little bit more. And what Paul talks about the diversity of bodies in the universe, he's spoken of, of plants. He mentions the flesh of humans, the flesh of beasts, the flesh of fish and birds, and even the heavenly bodies differ in size and type and glory. And keep in mind, Paul is not talking about heavenly bodies in the sense of, um, like, where God lives and, like, a different kind of human body. He's talking about celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars. All of these diverse bodies exist because God created them that way. And the God who creates with such diversity and such glory can certainly recreate us. How can this be? Because God wills it to be. And God is able to accomplish, as we've seen in so many ways, what He wills. And by the way, one of the pastoral concerns people often have when loved ones die is whether or not cremation is okay. I actually feel that question quite a bit. The short answer is yes. Jesus created us out of nothing, and He can recreate us out of the ashes. You know, and this should give us some hope, too, um, for those of us who have lost people in horrible accidents, where the body didn't survive in a great, in a great way. Um, and, it, and it makes logical sense. I mean, when you think about someone who was even buried in a perfect state thousands of years ago, they're, they're part of the earth now. I mean, they're, they're gone. Their body's gone. And so, yes, God can resurrect us out of nothing. He knows who we are. This line of thinking brings us to our second question, with what kind of body or what form or substance will this body actually have? And this is really a two-part question, <clears throat> or at least it warrants a two-part answer, I think. The first part of the answer, what kind of body or form do they come is, is that it's a physical body. Let's make that straight. Paul is not saying anything else. He's saying those of us who are in Christ, when we die, when we are resurrected from death, we will be resurrected in a body, in a physical body. The second part of the answer is is harder for us to get to. What will this resurrected body actually be like? The Corinthians were denying the resurrection of the dead, likely doing so not because it was hard for them to imagine resurrection from the dead, but because it was hard to imagine wanting resurrection from the dead. To the average Corinthian, the common belief was that the body, the physical world in general, was somehow a mistake that each person had a spark or fire inside that is their true self. And when the body should finally die, the spark or the self, the trueness, would live on as an eternal soul. What if, like, what that life as the eternal soul looked like after death to the uh, average Corinthian, varied from philosopher to philosopher, sophist to sophist, teacher to teacher. But in general, it was believed that to be rid of the body was a good thing. No one in their right Greek-thinking mind would ever conceive of an eternity in a body, unless, of course, it was some horrible form of punishment. See, in a world where people often died before the age of five, where mothers died in childbirth at a much higher rate than we do, where disease and pain and deformity, scarring and plague and fire and unsanitary living conditions were the norm. It was a nasty time to be alive, especially in urban centers like Corinth. They had not experienced good life in their current bodies, and therefore they could not imagine an embodied life that sounded worth living. So you see, it was hard for the Corinthians to imagine that an embodied resurrection would be hopeful. But it's hard for you and me as well. At least in our culture, and there's a few reasons for that. First of all, most of us are deeply influenced by this Greek thought and we don't even know it. Without even thinking about it, we often mentally separate the f- physical from the spiritual. We think that those are different things. Some of us grew up in churches where we were taught that when we die, we go to heaven and that's it. We die, and then we go be with Jesus. And even as kids, when we asked our pastors or our parents, what's that going to be like? We get this, well, Johnny, I don't know, but it will be better than you can imagine, which is code for I don't know either, and I don't really want to think about it because that's hard work. You may have read in Revelation the scene where the redeemed are singing praises in the throne room of God 24-7, and who hasn't thought to themselves, that'd be really good music for about an hour, but eternity? That's salvation? No, thank you. That sounds really boring. It sounds awful. Paul says, no, that's not actually what the resurrected life will be like. But if Paul says no, why do so many of us why have we been taught otherwise? Like I said, part of the reason is because we're living in a culture that's deeply influenced by Gnostic thought. The other reason that many of us have been taught otherwise is because well-meaning teachers have allowed uh, our cultural perspective to read into passages like this one. Thanks so much. Here's a passage um, from 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 just listen to it from your cultural perspective. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Now, listen to this. It is sown like a seed in the dirt, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, From your cultural vantage point, when you hear Paul say the body is sown, that is sown as a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body, what does that sound like? It sounds like the body that we have now is the natural one, as in physical, as in earthy. But when we're raised, we'll be in the spiritual body, which without any effort, my mind automatically assumes that means we're made of spirit ethereal, non-physical. That's what it sounds like. That's what my Western thinking conditioning makes me think of when I read that word. That's simply not the case. And this is where our cultural conditioning hurts us and where our English translations fail us. In Greek, the word behind the English word natural here in this passage, it's soukakon. Soukakon is from... It's, it's the word where we get the word psyche. No, not many of us think of the word psyche as a physical thing. That's why Paul quotes from Genesis 2-7 in this very passage. He says, the first man, Adam, became a living psyche, or psuchein from the same word. You and I, right now, are living souls, living souls. We have bodies that are wonderful, but we have limitations, don't we? I've got this cold right now. Our bodies age. They're prone to disease. They fatigue. They require lots of maintenance. They're corruptible in the sense that they degrade over time, and they'll die. But for those who are in Christ, when you die, you are raised to a soma, Greek word for body, pneumatikon, pneumatikon, a spiritual body not raised as a spirit. That is significant. N.T. Wright uses the analogy of looking at two ships. If I offer you two ships to look at, one is a sailing ship, the other is a steamship, okay? There's different ways to look at those ships. You could focus on what they're made out of, well, the steamship is steel, and the sailing ship is wood or fiberglass, but that's not what I said. I said there's two ships. One is a steamship, and one is a sailing ship. What I've told you the difference is, is what they run on. One runs by the wind. The other runs by a fuel that makes steam. That's Paul's point in talking about the natural in the spiritual bodies, not what they're made out of, but what they run on. Our bodies right now run on natural psyche, natural stuff. They're corruptible. But our new body, says Paul, will run on and will run on the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute, you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. What of all this talk about resurrection bodies being heavenly, huh? And what about flesh and blood not being able to inherit the kingdom of God? What do you do with those? Okay, again, Wright's analogy is helpful. Saying that in the resurrection we'll receive heavenly bodies is like this. Um, I invite you over to my house and I say, "I've got beer in the fridge. I don't expect you to come to my house and go in the refrigerator. That's not where we're going to party. Uh, I, when I expect you to come to my house and then I will get the beer out of the refrigerator and bring it into the living room where we will share it together. See what I'm saying is, just because Paul's talking about having heavenly bodies, is not saying that you've got to go be this ethereal spiritual thing. It's that this is what's preserved for you in God and he's going to give it to you. Our bodies right now are not equipped to live in the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood are terms used to describe our current corruptible bodies. Paul's point here is that when Jesus returns, the dead who are in Christ will be raised to resurrection bodies. And for those who are still alive, like if Christ were to come back right now and bring his kingdom You and I aren't dead. We don't have to die first. That's what he's talking about when he says, I tell you a mystery. Not all will die, but all will be transformed. So if Christ were to come back right now in our midst, we don't have to die and then get resurrection bodies. We'll be transformed into resurrection bodies. Why is that important? Because our bodies right now are not equipped for life in the kingdom. It's a more substantial, more real, more amazing uh, existence than we can imagine. So, what will these new bodies be like? And how does Paul know? And how do we know? Back to that story about bungee jumping how helpful it is to have an example to go before us. And that person, of course, is Jesus. Paul encountered the risen Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. He was well acquainted with his colleagues who were all eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And this is what we know that Jesus had that psyche life, and he died on a cross, and he went in a tomb, and three days later, he rose into that pneumatakos life, and he had a body. He was physical. Katie read earlier about Thomas touching Jesus. Mary hugged Jesus when she saw him in the garden. He ate. We'll be able to eat. So cool. I love that. And yet, his body was, how shall I say, special. Like, he walked through a locked door, um, and he appeared and disappeared at will and appeared to be able to teleport different places. Jesus was recognizable, but different. Like, Lazarus died, and then Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Lazarus was simply reanimated, not resurrected, because Lazarus died again. He was just resuscitated. But Jesus was raised in a new kind of body altogether, a resurrection body. So just like the analogy of the seed going into the ground and growing into something new, an apple seed, to my reckoning, doesn't look much like an apple tree. doesn't even look like, much like an apple. But if you know the seed and you know the plant and you know when you bust open an apple, you see the seed, you see there is some continuity there. And yet there's discontinuity as well. An apple tree full of fruit is somehow greater and more than just a simple seed. In a similar way, when Jesus rose, Mary thought for a while that he was the gardener until he spoke her name, and then she realized it was him. So the resurrected body will have a range of continuity and discontinuity with the old. And if we see our our diseases and our weaknesses and our disabilities And our injuries, our gender confusion, our physical or emotional brokenness, if we see these things as somehow a result of sin corrupting the world, then we can have hope that those things won't hinder us in the resurrection. That we'll have incorruptible bodies that actually work correctly and in line with the heart of Jesus. Our new bodies will be imperishable. Our systems will work correctly. Our brain chemistry, oh, no more winter blues, no more depression, no more bipolar, no more. It will work right. Our heart, our desires will be aligned properly with Jesus. There's lots of mystery in the resurrection, lots of time and space to imagine what it could be like. Some have done a great job with this. C.S. Lewis, of course, in The Great Divorce, I think is fantastic. Or even Lewis in uh, The Last Battle and some of those scenes. Fiction, of course, but something substantial there. What we do know is that Jesus is our prototype. Our future with Him will be physical, but better than what we have thus far experienced. And that means that our hope we have in Jesus is an embodied hope that we are going to inhabit a physical, albeit recreated, world, that Jesus will be our king. And this is central to Paul's gospel to Corinth and the gospel to us. Would you pray with me? Or we confess that this mystery of resurrection is... Uh, definitely mind-blowing. It's beyond what we can easily grasp, and yet you have given us some example of what that can be like through your resurrection appearances and the way that you interacted in a physical way um, in your risen state. Lord, each one of us is touched by the limitations of our bodies. Each one of us has been broken through the loss of a loved one, seeing our friends, family suffer. Lord, sometimes we confess it's easier, even more desirable, to think of a a future outside of the body. Lord, thank you for this promise of, um, of an embodied future that is incorruptible. For bodies that don't break down and don't get sick and don't die and don't get hurt. For minds that are formed in the, in the right way that don't want to hurt other people. Lord, would you help us to be filled with hope of an embodied, resurrected future. And as we revisit this text next week, looking at why all of this matters in life today, God, I pray you'd begin even now to, um, to give us ideas and vision of why this matters this week as we go out together. Fill me and my brothers and sisters with resurrection hope today, Lord. Amen.